Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to How Magicians Think. My name is Joshua J, and I'm your host. And today's episode is called Magic in the Movies. How Magicians Think is my love letter to magic and the best magicians in the world. It's a podcast about what happens when you spend every waking second of your life pushing the boundaries of what's possible. It's about taking the ordinary and doing the extraordinary. I want to take you behind the curtain so that you can see the inner beauty of magic and appreciate the world's most secretive profession in a whole new way. I'm Joshua J, and this is How Magicians Think. Welcome to the show. You may not realize it, but when you watch science fiction films from Star Wars to Aliens, you are watching magic tricks. And further, you may not realize that many of those tricks, camera tricks like the cut and the dissolve, were created by Georges Méliès. Georges Méliès was a magician first and a filmmaker second. He was, until the middle of the 20th century, an unsung hero of cinema. You might recognize the name because of the fantastic film by Martin Scorsese, Hugo, which features Georges Méliès as a defining character. Jamie and Swiss and Jim Steinmeier both shared with me their thoughts on the incomparable Georges Méliès. So the founders of the art of cinema were magicians, not just figuratively speaking, but literally speaking. Georges Mélès, who bought the Robert Audin, did magic, produced magic shows at the theater, and also was an early presenter of what later became the movies. And he discovered, among other things, special effects. He discovered by accident, the famous story goes, where he was filming one thing, stopped, then was filming another thing, and then when he looked at the film, The image just changed, and he thought, oh, I could do something with that. You know, I've had this conversation, actually, with Werner Herzog, you know, who said, yes, we we owe you magicians a great debt because magicians invented the idea of editing, which is the thing, the technique, the tool that turned the technology of cinema into a narrative art. It's editing that enabled that, along with the idea of special effects. Miliez's early films, some of them were of magic acts, but magic acts, they appeared to be magic acts in a kind of conventional way, except for the tricks they were doing, which were accomplished by special effects of special editing. That was the subject matter of some of his earliest films. So film and magic are literally deeply entwined from the absolute birth of cinema as an art form. Well, Melies is a really interesting uh, character because, of course, he came out of magic. As a Frenchman, uh, idolized British magic, masculine cook magic that he saw when he was a young man in London. 
And he brought that back to Paris and ended up buying the Theatre Robert Dan and continuing the Theatre Robert Dan with Robert Dan's original apparatus and many of his original tricks. And so as an entrepreneur and as an artist, you know, Melies was always looking for the, the new trick. And I think we see other great magicians of his generation doing the same thing. And that new trick was cinema. And it's not that hard to believe if you look at it, because magicians at that time very often included magic lantern performances in their shows. It was at that time perceived as being part of magic. And uh, Melies naturally gravitated towards that, as did other magicians. But I think the difference with Melies is that his range of skills as an entrepreneur, as a scenic artist, as a painter, and as a performer and a storyteller were just perfectly suited to this. And what he did was he transferred the world of magic onto film. And of course, in the course of that, created special effects. And I think that steps logically from his experience in magic. The way that Melies discovered the cut and the dissolve was entirely by accident. He was outside with his newly bought camera, and he was filming passersby on the street. He stopped the camera to fix something and started it again and thought nothing of it. But later on, when he was projecting what he filmed, he had to physically tape, splice together two aspects of what he had been filming. And at the juncture between those two points, he watched a train car dissolve into a person. He watched a group of people change from men into women. And he realized immediately that with a few tweaks, that could be done on purpose and turned into a magic trick. It seems that from that moment at the turn of the 20th century to this moment, magic and film are inextricably linked. And this episode is celebrating the intersection points. I will talk with Larry Fong, widely considered the most sought-after director of photography in Hollywood and a lifelong amateur magician. We'll explore what magic has taught Fong about visual storytelling and which A-list celebrities are the most interesting spectators for his card tricks. Then we'll talk with Mike Elizalde, a modern-day special effects magician who is also an amateur magician and responsible for some of the greatest monsters in modern cinema. And we'll round out the episode by asking some of my favorite magicians what their favorite magic movies are. But before we do all of that, let me state once and for all what I think are the best magic films. I think that if you're talking about this in the modern era, you have to talk about The Illusionist, The Prestige, Now You See Me, Hugo, and what I would tell you is this. I think Now You See Me is a fun film, but not a great film. When I watch it now, it feels a bit dated, a bit trite. When I watch The Prestige, as much as I like Christopher Nolan, I find that it falls prey to a lot of the tropes that every piece of magic fiction falls prey to. Dueling magicians. Magicians who discover real magic. You know, I'm sent novels whenever there's a magic theme to them because people want a comment or a blurb. And I have a whole section. There must be a dozen books in the last five years about the same topic. And the same thing always happens. Magicians uncover real magic. It's just a little bit tired and not particularly original. I think The Illusionist is the better of the two films that came out at the same time, The Illusionist and The Prestige, for the simple reason that, and spoilers lie ahead, what appears to be real magic in The Illusionist is actually founded in real methodology. In other words, at the end of the film, the revelation is that what looked real isn't real at all. And I think that's important. But the best magic film for me, and the best one by a mile, 
is Martin Scorsese's Hugo. Hugo captures everything wonderful about magic to me, despite the fact that there isn't a ton of magic in the movie. The film celebrates early cinema, but it also celebrates the ingenuity of a magician, the wild, boundless creativity of a magician doing something in a new medium that is unproven and as yet totally untested. If you haven't seen Hugo, I envy you because you're in for a treat of a movie that is so exceptional and not talked about, in my opinion, as much as it should be. But now, let's jump right to somebody who's a part of some of the biggest films being made today. We welcome to the podcast, Larry Fong. I started being interested in films probably in junior high. I found my dad's movie camera. But of course, I didn't do regular drama. I was doing, of course, monsters and blood and spaceships and blowing things up. So anything that was visual and crazy wasn't the subtle, dramatic stuff. I did a movie with J.J. Abrams called Super 8. That was partly based on when J.J. and I met, we were teenagers, and we were both into magic and movies. And I don't know if you've seen the movie, but one of the kids is all into magic. And when you go to his bedroom, you see all the magic props. And those are magic props we insisted were in the movie. My copy of Dunningers is on the floor, like under the bed. You can hear like the Lincoln rings falling. I think there's a stratosphere somewhere in there. Uh, So that guy was a magic nerd. Now, I recall one time you telling me about an Easter egg that you buried. A playing card? Yeah. When I started to want to do that Easter egg, I put in the Three of Clubs, of course, which is an ode to Penn and Teller, in as many films as I could. I can't remember which film I started with. Oh, yeah. Skull Island. There's a Three of Clubs in there. But also, after that was Predator, and before that was Batman versus Superman, and tried to get it in Sucker Punch, but I think you couldn't see it. Oh, three, Watchmen has like two or three Three Clubs in it. But during The Predator that I shot, I became invited to become a member of the 52, and that means you had to get a tattoo and you had to choose a card. And I wanted the Three of Clubs, but it was taken, so the closest was Seven of Clubs. So now Seven of Clubs is the new card. And it is in Tomorrow War Hidden in there, if you, and in Predator, if you want to look. The 52 Club is an elite, self-proclaimed magic club where 52 living sleight-of-hand artists have each given themselves a tattoo in the little crook of their middle finger. Are there lessons that you that you learn from magic that you think about in your work? Because from the outside looking in, magic is such a visual medium. Nothing works in a magic show if you aren't thinking about the look of it, the look of the set, how you're going to reveal a card. If you're doing something flat on a table and the audience is out there, you have to put it in a wine glass or do something to get it visual. Are there considerations that you've thought about based on your work in either one? Oh yeah, all the time. I think every day when you're watching the monitor and you're trying to make the scene work. As a magician, I think you can think out of the box where there's so much problem solving in filmmaking where you can say, you know, if you just turn that thing around there and flip that and do this thing, we can do it in five minutes instead of the hour and your crazy other rig or something. And because I have so many great magician friends that when you hang around them, you have that magician's mind. When you're out having a sandwich with your magician friends, you're always, ideas are always coming up. You're playing with the pickle or the piece of bread or the straw and then something comes to mind. It's the same kind of thing, you know? I'll try to look out for things that'll be interesting or something new or easy or efficient when I'm on set. They'll work years on an illusion until it's right. 
redo it, do various versions of it and perfecting it. Then I realized in my art, we didn't get any practice. When you show up in the morning and you say, okay, here's the scene, the restaurant, we've been talking about it. We talked about how we want it to look. And then the actors rehearse and you shoot it. Hopefully it comes out okay. But it might not be perfect because then the sun goes down, you're it's over. You don't go, you know, can, I, can we redo that? I wasn't... I had another idea, like the next day. Can we redo that? I think Woody Allen, maybe he did things like that. But normal movies, you can't do that. And if I don't have time to make the lighting right, which is my job, and the camera moves or something's out of focus, it's on Blu-ray or digital stream forever. Isn't that weird and scary at the same time? And then people criticize films because of this what's so great or didn't look so good. You get that one chance. It's, it's not even theater, right? Where you can at least have 5, 10, 20 performances if it's on Broadway or however, however long your run is. But film, you just praying that it just doesn't all fall apart. So it's very tenuous. I don't know if people realize with movies that it's a miracle that they get made at all. Do you have like a favorite memory of doing magic for somebody on a set? Do you have a deck of cards in your hands and Samuel L. Jackson is like, hey, Larry, what's going on there? First of all, when I did a, a trick to him, I don't think he liked it that much. I mean, are you really surprised? Some people like magic and some people are more reserved. When I did Batman versus Superman, doing magic for Gal Gadot was pretty exciting. I mean, have Wonder Woman walk up to you in the morning and say, Larry, do you have any magic? How can you not be excited about that? Do you have a favorite magic film? I really, really did enjoy Hugo just because, as you know, the history of cinema is entangled with the history of magic. Of course, it had its crazy fan fantastical edge as did the prestige and um the illusionist and all i love those as well it's hard to do magic right because the screenwriters they have an idea of what magic is which is very different from the magic world you and i know which is fine probably better they don't know (laughs) but you know what i mean like when a magician's on stage and the way they talk it's always the same weird cliche thing what about in terms of translating magic on television i'm always struck by how sometimes the most unexpected people intuitively get how to play magic for a a film or a a live show. They have great TV segments. Certainly David Blaine is at the top of that list. He just gets what is compelling about magic on TV. It's in its own lane from live magic because the negative way of saying it is some of my favorite magicians to see live just don't really work very well on television. Do you have any sense of what shift occurs between live and, and camera? You know, I think about that all the time, and we have a lot of conversations, me and various magicians. And it's funny you say David Blaine, because at the beginning, I remember a lot of us didn't know what to think. I remember a lot of magicians did not like David Blaine. It's stuff you could just buy at a store, blah, blah, blah. But he hit on something, and his team, which worked for so many people, because it was like that documentary reality feel, but just because it was done that documentary way and the way it was cut, people thought, well, this is for real. This is real life. He's the devil. And also just because he didn't wear the magician's garb and his style was so different that people really thought that was real. It was such a sea change moment because, of course, it was the lack of all the cliche stuff. He didn't walk up and say, there were three ropes and I have three ropes. <laughs> you know, it was, want to see something? And he talked like normal people talk to each other. And there was no attempt to make it theatrical. It was anti-theatrical. He broke a lot of the rules. And, and then other people tried to follow in his footsteps with various degrees of success. And it really makes you wonder. Because some people with David Blaine, they go, there's no editing. There's no camera, anything that's totally real. But then other 
similar magicians who had TV shows. Everyone thought everything they did was with Stooges, and it's all editing. <laughs> and I don't know how you you make that line where you, people trust you or or think it's all fake. And now we talk to Mike Elizalde. Mike spends his days creating monsters and his nights performing magic in venues like the Magic Castle. He has a completely unique perspective on magic and his own set of favorites. I loved movies as a kid. My stepdad was a big fan of sci-fi horror fantasy films. And so he introduced me to a lot of wonderful films when I was very young. But I think magic was my first passion. Some of the first influences that I remember uh, were watching Marshall Burdine doing his TV magic cards. I saw some magicians on Ed Sullivan as a kid, and that always really interested me. What I didn't know at the time is that, you know, watching the special effects in films was completely the same thing. It was the same kind of fascination and the same sort of, how did they do that? And I wish I could do that. It was really about sleight of hand and it was about the kind of craft and art that we create as magicians. But without knowing it at the same time, that undercurrent of really being fascinated by creatures, special effects, special makeup effects in film, all of that movie magic stuff. When people say, well, Mike, a lot of the things you're doing can just be done by computers now. Why would we bother? What's your kind of answer to that question? It's a very it's a complex issue because it's true that many of the things that we create can be done with computers, have been done with computers, and will continue to be done with computers. But the thing that I always go back to is it's happening under your nose. It's real. It's not pixels. It's, it's molecules. It brings an energy a displacement of, of molecules around it. There's presence. There's something, for me as a, as a viewer, not as a professional, but as a viewer, if I see something on a screen that is digital, something happens in my brain where the suspension of disbelief doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. It's, it's, I, I'm just, it's happening because they can do it, because it, it can be done with that medium. When I see something practical, that's when I feel this amazing, oh, wow, how did they do that? That's, to me, that is, that is a much more visceral you know, reaction. Is there an example of where you wanted to control somebody's attention on a model away from this? Or, you know, any skills that you learned within magic that you put into your work? It, it worked in just the opposite direction for me. You know, a couple of years ago, I performed uh, at the Magic Castle. I, I put a show together with uh, director, writer Chris Philpott, who's a good friend of mine. And we brought film narrative to this show that we did in the Close Up Gallery. <laughs> it was very ambitious for the Close Up Gallery, <laughs> but it really did serve to have all of the Chris's his, uh, screenwriting skills, my, my special effects skills, all of that came together. You know, and sort of went in the opposite direction. It's like, let's bring the movie business into the magic community. And and it was really rewarding. It was a very wonderful experience for us, you know, and I hope for the audience too. It was it was a lot of fun. We had a great time. So which film is the best magic film? Of course, that's a matter of personal opinion. And Jamie Ian Swiss is not short on personal opinions. I can't imagine anyone answering this question without invoking Hugo. And Although, although I'm a huge Scorsese fan, I'm a big cinema buff, and I'm a huge Scorsese fan. I think he's our greatest living director. I didn't know anything about Hugo when I went in. 
And I remember sitting there only a short while into the film saying, someone has programmed a film, designed a film for my DNA. This is the film I've been studying my whole life. I really felt that way. And I absolutely adore that movie. I think that you have the portrayal of a passionate artist at the core of this thing, which is inspiring. You know, it's also, leave it to Scorsese, it's the first 3D film he ever made, the first kids film, really family film he ever made. And it's a masterpiece on all those counts. It's the only 3D film I've ever seen I thought was any good so far. And yes, magic is hard to portray because magic doesn't really doesn't even belong on TV. We all watch magic on TV. Magic doesn't belong on TV. It doesn't work on TV. It's not the same experience on TV. It's not the same experience at all. And of course, cinema is not even the same experience. If you're watching at home and you're watching The Irishman and you hit pause so you can go to the bathroom, you have now transformed the experience that the filmmaker was designing for you. And you're distorting the experience. And magic, especially in 2D, is just because the effects of magic are fundamentally trivial. Look, I changed a red ball to a green ball, worship me. But what makes magic powerful is the conditions. And people are intuitively aware of that. How many times every close-up magician hears the phrase, I always thought if I was this close, I'd see how it was done. What does that mean? That means they know that when they're in a stage theater and they're seeing magic from 100 feet away, that distance is being used against them. It's the conditions of magic that make it interesting. So it's always going to be second class in recorded media. That said, it was like a paranormal event. We had two movies about magic in the movie theaters at the same time. It's the only time it's ever happened in history, right? Prestige and The Illusionist. I don't particularly care for The Illusionist. I like The Prestige a lot. And one of the things I really like about Prestige is the way the magic is portrayed, thanks significantly, not entirely, but significantly to Michael Weber and Ricky Jay, they fulfill very cleverly, they inform the, the filmmakers and they fulfill the expectations of the audience. It's totally counterintuitive to people that the fundamental methods of magic are, can be so moronically simple at times. The reasons illusions work is because we build all these other layers of complexity on top of it of psychology and presentation and performance. But the methods are more often than not kind of ugly. That's why Penn and Teller invent methods to expose. They don't expose real methods. Real methods are ugly. They invent methods that are clever and entertaining. So in The Prestige, I love the birdcage because the birdcage is kind of like a vanishing birdcage, except it's wildly more elaborate, which fulfills the expectations of the audience who always want to believe and invent solutions that are way more complicated. I have twice had people tell me that the card on ceiling was done with an electromagnet in the ceiling. Twice! So the birdcage fulfills people's expectations and therefore becomes a kind of truth Right? There's a difference between accuracy and truth, as discussed in that great Paul Newman film. There's a difference between accuracy and truth. And the portrayal of magic and the prestige is not literally accurate, but it achieves a kind of truthfulness that I think is terrific. The other great magic film is with Vincent Price, the magician, which is he portrays a illusion designer 
who makes all these other magicians famous with his designs and nobody knows who he is. And he becomes so frustrated by this, he starts to murder the magicians. And uh, that could almost be a documentary. Jim Steinmeier has his own opinion on the best magic movie. I really think that like a lot of things that are turned into stories or applied to other media, those stories get told differently. So yeah, I thought The Illusionist was, I'll take as an example of one of my favorites. Really wonderful, evocative, fun story. I say fun because it, it ties up so many kind of myths of magic of that day. But it isn't, it isn't accurate. It doesn't present a, a real view of, of magic in that era. It gives a kind of romanticized view of it. And so much of, of storytelling is exactly that. And I think that that's the purpose of it. If you look at the, the Houdini movie, the, the, the classic 1953 Houdini movie with Tony Curtis and Janet Leigh, they worked very hard to kind of give the sense of vaudeville and the fun of that. But of course, it's told through a 1960s perspective, 1950s, 60s perspective. And so entertainment was changing. And so vaudeville was being portrayed as being seen through that, that uh, telescope of a later era. And I think that every aspect of a, a medium, whether it's magic or music, or acting, or any kind of performance, or art, is put on film, or translated into another story, there have to be unbelievable liberties taken with it, because you're giving one aspect of that story that, for the sake of the plot, and you're not giving the full complexities of it. Jamie and Swiss and Jim Steinmeier are both making a very similar point here, and it was one that I didn't realize or recognize, but I'm enlightened to it now, and I think I agree with it, and that is, those gentlemen aren't concerned with authenticity of methods. In fact, they quite like the idea of inventing methods or showing what the public may think is how a trick works, even if it's not anything to do with how a trick actually works. And I'm okay with that, and I understand that now, that perhaps my issue with the prestige being so far from what real magicians would do, I need to let that go and let a great story take precedent over complete and total authenticity. I'd like to end with a wish. And the wish is that there would be more intersection points between magic and films. But there are so many good stories that have yet gone untold. But I hope that the next film isn't some dueling magicians, magician discovers real magic type of plot. Instead, I hope it tells the story of William Robinson, or Henry Box Brown, or Adelaide Herman, or any of these true stories that are actually stranger and more amazing than fiction. The next episode of How Magicians Think is called The Greatest Magician You've Never Heard Of. And here's the spoiler alert. His name is Henry Box Brown. He was a black magician who mailed himself from bondage into freedom. We'll sit down with Rory Rennick, the world's leading Henry Box Brown scholar, for a deep dive into this amazing character you should really know about. We'll see you next time on How Magicians Think. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you follow it on your favorite podcast app, and don't forget to fill your friends' lives with magic by clicking that share button inside the app. If you'd like to find more information about me or my career or my book, How Magicians Think, or my tour, you can find all of that at joshuaj.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Joshua J, and this is How Magicians Think.
How Magicians Think is a production of Audio Up Media and Vanishing Inc. Executive produced by Joshua J., Jared Gustat, Phil Alberstadt, and Jimmy Jelinek. Written by Joshua J. Audio Up in-house production by Jordana Glick-Fransheim and Nate Glassman-Hughes. Edited by Carrie Caulfield-Eric. Sound design and mix by Carrie Caulfield-Eric. For the full list of production credits, please visit audioup.com. You can find more podcasts from Audio Up on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find the ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.